Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, inflation, employment, and the state of the economy. More and more are earning more and more, and state economist Paul Turek will join us on why that's not necessarily a good thing. Plus, the state insurance commissioner faces bipartisan calls for him to step down, the accusations against him, and why he says he's not going anywhere. Racial disparities in policing. John Lobertini has the latest on a new report looking at the King County Sheriff's Office. He'll explain why it's not as cut and dry as you might think. And laying down the law when it comes to explosives. Why one local jurisdiction says no more to 4th of July fireworks. All of that coming up this hour. But first, the first two public hearings of the January 6th committee are now in the books. There's at least one more public hearing scheduled for next week. We may even have more, but what have we learned so far? Is there anything new coming out of this? Joining me now is Democratic strategist Kathy Allen and Republican strategist Randy Peppel. And I guess the, the first sort of thing that I've, I've, I've noticed in, in all of these hearings, and I'll put this to both of you, is that anything new that's coming out wasn't all that surprising. It was all stuff that was suspected and it, it, not a whole lot of major rev- revelations. No, but this is like reading all the president's men is that all of the details for anyone who's actually a political hack like myself, I could tell you that the details, the details, the details are very interesting to me. Even some of these things, uh, even some of the quotes uh, uh, that came out in regards to uh, many of the players from Ivanka to Pence, uh, there are all of these kind of special little details that are food for anyone who is sort of an insider kind of looking at the all conspiracy theories. I think there is some news, but to the detriment of the committee's work, they leaked so much over the, the, the last year that they've been doing this investigation that they kind of uh, uh, stepped on their own lead, if you know the old uh, journalism term. The public has had time to digest much of the what would have been uh, front page headline news had this happened during Watergate. So there's not a big gotcha uh, that has been produced so far, and perhaps that's going to be next week. But this is also an election year in 2022. We've got the midterms coming up. How much of this is just political theater? I'm not sure it's all political theater, but I do think there are some interesting strategies that we're starting to see right now, That particularly in my own party, where people are realizing if you put Adam Schiff up there, the congressman from um, uh, California, the fact is, is that it becomes nothing but a partisan open your mouth and it's just all partisan from that on. Putting Liz Cheney up there was a, a move that actually sort of settled down folks and made us feel proud that we had someone like Liz that was seeing this thing objectively. When I think that if anything, it is having an effect on, on Donald Trump's numbers. But again, it's sort of like also bringing up his name and making him a bigger character than what we were used to in the preceding six months of silence from him. So I'm not sure it's political theater. I'm sure it's more interesting than the poor war in Ukraine, which I think the American public is also getting tired of. Yeah, I wouldn't call it political theater uh, because I think that is to dismiss the hard work of uh, the members of Congress and their staff, uh, the investigators that have been working on this to try to get to an essential truth, which is 
Was January 6th a riot that uh, was just taking place in a in a place where the visuals made it look very bad? Or was it a planned coup attempt by the sitting president? And if you listen to those on the left, to the far left, it was a planned coup. And we're going to walk you through how how it was, as opposed if you're listening to those on the right, the Trump supporters, even those who are Republicans on the right, just going, really, you had a ragtag bunch of folks who uh, uh, got out of control. And it wasn't that big of a thing. And so the committee's challenge to bring that those two threads together, I, I wouldn't dismiss it as political theater. I think that they have not brought them together in a way that will reach out to the last, you know, five to 10 percent of the people who haven't made up their mind already. Um, and that's where some of them are playing more theatrical in their presentations because they're trying to reach that last of five to 10 percent. How much credibility does the January 6th committee have? Because when this whole thing started, you had Nancy Pelosi veto Jim Jordan, who was put on the committee by Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, in favor of some more moderate Republicans. Uh, and from that point on, Republicans seem to be very skeptical from it from the beginning. Yeah, I would uh, think that uh, Speaker Pelosi regrets uh, the decision she made about how the committee was going to be structured, how the investigation was going to be structured. It was made in the immediate aftermath because had she extended the olive branch to Republicans and said, we're going to have a committee, equal members, Republicans, equal member uh, Democrats, and we are just going to have an investigation go forth. You pick yours, we'll pick ours, and that will be the work. There might be a majority minority report at the end, or there might not. But then it would have started on a nonpartisan basis or a bipartisan basis. Unfortunately, she rejected requests to do just that. The news that we have learned since then has made President Trump look even worse than he did on January 6th. I suggested that at the time. I said, as we learn more, it will make him look worse. The unfortunate thing is I think Democrats have made themselves look worse in leaking selected portions of the investigation all along, as opposed to doing a legitimate investigation where you wait until you present the jury the evidence at the end. Brandy, I think you're being a tad naive here, and I think Nancy Pelosi's thrilled with the results. Nancy Pelosi is not a player. The important part is right now the news is the playing. The news of what they've revealed is exciting and interesting to people, and it has great simply That's simply not true. The latest poll out this morning is USA Today, you know, is Biden's approval is at 39%, but even worse, wrong direction, wrong track of the country, 71%. I mean, Kathy, you and I have been in politics a long time. When the right direction, wrong track number is at 71 wrong track, it's not the fault of the guy two years ago. I have and to disagree. I, I, I think I, it is. I agree with the seriousness of the events on January 6th, Kathy, and you know that I, I've said that consistently. It, it, that Donald Trump was responsible for inciting that riot. Absolutely no question in my mind whatsoever, and was none at that time, and none in the minds of a lot of serious-minded people on the right and on the left. However, 17 months later, after leaking details during the entire creation of this committee, up until now, 
They have undermined their own case. And that's why the, the current president's approval numbers are so low. This is not about Biden. This is about Trump. And even if it's just going to be three weeks worth of Trump, the fact is, is that whatever Biden's numbers are, the American people are saying, God, this is worse than I thought. It is worse than I thought. And actually, yes, this is an embarrassment to the country. We can't let anyone like Trump ever take over ever again. Finally, nothing is done in Washington without political considerations. How much is this by the Democrats trying to damage Trump and discourage him from running again? Well, I'm not so sure that it really is about the playmanship here, because, you know, as we've seen with all of the other kinds of staged D.C. meetings and the hearings, the fact is, is that so much of this is shooting from the hip. In fact, perhaps the strength of this really is that it didn't seem orchestrated. Yeah, I I would agree with Kathy on that. I mean, uh, Judge Ludwig is someone that uh, is uh, well known in conservative Republican circles. I mean, he, he was runner up, allegedly, twice. Uh, to be nominated for the Supreme Court. So this is not somebody who acts irrationally, uh, like uh, commentators on the right and the left are prone to do. (laughs) And he was very deliberate. And no, that makes for terrible, terrible television. Uh, But the point is, it was one of his own former law clerks and someone that he considered a friend uh, who was putting forth the theory that President Trump uh, had gleaned onto that somehow Mike Pence, his vice president, could make a determinative action on January 6th to keep him as president and reject uh, the victory of Joe Biden uh, as the choice of the people, both uh, in, in the general vote and in the electoral college vote. And to have somebody who could put it in precise legal language, I think was very helpful. However, that is not changing people's minds right now because uh, they aren't hearing it. And again, Kathy can accuse me of partisanship, but people are a little bit more concerned about inflation and gas prices right now than they are these hearings. And even though they've had very good viewership, but there weren't a lot of people who were tuning in to have their minds changed, I don't think. And and that is uh, uh, that is why I think you've seen some sides resort to the theatrics to try to get more attention. And we'll have to leave it there. Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen, thank you so much. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, pain at the pump and everywhere else. An economist's look at inflation and what can be done to fight it when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Clearly, the economy is going to be a major issue in the 2022 midterm elections, and if it continues to be a problem, it could hamper President Biden's hopes for re-election. But how is the Washington state economy doing? We figured we'd take a look, and joining me now on the Northwest Newsline is Paul Turek. He is a labor economist with the State Employment Security Department and can talk about all of these issues. And first off, the one thing we did see about Washington state this week is that wages continue to grow at a pretty fast pace. Yeah, um, money, wages, and salaries went up in 2006. 21. Uh, the increase was second largest on record. When was the largest on record? Largest was actually last year as the economy was bouncing back from the pandemic. So this is kind of continuing a trend then? Yeah, it is in the sense that uh, wages in general have been rising over the last two years. 
Uh, these are money wages, by the way, not adjusted for inflation. We're seeing some effects of a bounce back in uh, industries that were most impacted by the pandemic and the fact that there's been some strong demand for workers leading to shortages that have given employers the incentive to compete for workers more by bumping up wages and compensation. Are we expecting this to continue? Nothing is forever, you know, uh, and it's difficult to forecast how that's going to take place. Right now, things look very good in the labor market uh, in a sense that, and that's been going on for some time, in a sense that jobs have pretty much been chasing workers. Uh, It's been a worker's choice. In many cases, the quits rate is up. Uh, Workers have been moving into more employment opportunities. And we see that reflected in the fact that wages have been going up. The the one thing that we don't talk about, the adjustment of unemployment benefit compensation and taxes to employers that support that program. The one thing that, of course, we're not talking about uh, with the labor market, at least I'm not talking about, um, until right now with the labor market is the fact that we do have an inflation problem. You've you got some mixed things taking place within the economy, how well we deal with that. And I'm talking about economy managers in the future uh, will then determine what happens to wage growth in the, uh, I'd say, near future. So is this unusual or is this kind of what happens when you see inflation that that prices go up, wages go up, that sort of thing. Is this kind of the usual trend? You've got a situation where inflationary environment, the components of that that has contributed to that in one case has been rising costs. Wage, wages going up is one of those rising cost figures. And the prob- some of the problems with that, um, if, if inflation isn't kept under close watch and control, the increase in wages uh, bump up the cost to employers. So there can tend to be an upward wage inflation spiral. Generally, that um, ends uh, and we move into tougher times. Uh, at that point, we no longer get jobs chasing people, but back to maybe a more traditional situation where people start chasing jobs again. You've been an economist for quite some time, so how unusual is the current situation with the the wage increases, the the rocketing inflation, the the Fed raising interest rates by three quarters of a point? How unusual is this? Have we seen this before, or is this pretty bad? Uh, we have seen this before, but not everybody has seen it before. You mentioned the fact that I've been at this for quite some time. I have seen it before. Um, it's kind of a replay of the 1970s. Uh, and the early 80s, when we had something similar taking place. In fact, in, in many of the circumstances, the similarities are, are quite eerie. But as can be the case, many people can have short-term memories, or they just weren't born yet, and haven't seen this ever occur. You know, if you come in, you came in on board uh, after the 80s, which is a you know a large part of the population. But it's one of those situations where, you know, you would think that if you've got older individuals who understand that and have seen that, you might have done a better job in preventing that. But, you know, kind of the old adage, if you, if you don't learn from history, you're sort of doomed to repeat it. Going to the Fed a little bit, the three quarters of an interest rate hike, that's, that's pretty significant. Is that expected to change anything? Maybe not so much in the short term. Uh, but the thinking is that there's going to be more interest rate hikes. It is significant. 
in, in that, uh, I believe, since the, the early 1980s, the economy has done very well at keeping inflation in check. And maybe that's the reason why, you know, if you don't see it happen, maybe you believe it's not going to happen again. But it has come up again. I think the Fed has a ways to go to tame inflation. It's got a tough balancing act right now to try to deal with inflation uh, without bringing about a declining economy, um, the so-called soft landing. Right now, that looks to be a very difficult challenge. The problem that it might have is it worries so much about preventing a recession may never get a handle on inflation. Once inflation gets out in the way that it's got, gotten out, it takes quite a bit of effort to put that, bring that back under control. And in the early 1980s, the only way that that was, was happening was to bring the economy into a recession. So this is kind of a tough outlook. Probably the best way to prevent inflation is to not let it happen to begin with. Inflation is one thing, employment is another, but they're both factors and or influencers in the economy. But unemployment seems to be pretty low in Washington State right now, isn't it? It is. Uh, in fact, we're at a historic low of 3.9% would generally be considered from a labor market standpoint to be at full employment. That's where things are at the moment. Uh, and I guess that's probably all that I should say. On a broader note, you're the economist. What has led to this rampant inflation? Obviously, the the COVID uh, situation caused issues, and then all the money that the government spent on benefits, was that part of it? I mean, what led to this? Yeah, you're you're sort of getting at it. When when you talk to an economist, the economist is always going to tell you it's a demand and supply issue. So when you put those two together, that determines what the price levels are going to look like. If you push up the demand for goods and services, then you're going to uh, not only promote full employment, but you can overshoot that and produce inflation. So because of the accommodative monetary policy that the Fed has produced by keeping interest rates low and purchasing treasury securities, principally mortgage-backed securities, to fuel the housing market, you've seen the demands increase and bump prices up that way. But also because of COVID and also because of energy policy and also because of the war in Ukraine, you've seen a a large part of that directed toward the supply side of the economy. It's uh, created bottlenecks in the supply chain. It's pushed up the cost to producers in the form of higher fuel prices. It's pushed up delivery costs because of fuel prices. It's also, as I mentioned, with the full employment, with the tighter labor market, that's increased the cost to employers to then pass that on in the form of higher prices. Um, So you've got all of those things coming together and producing inflation. We do ask the Fed to do a bit of a job uh, in controlling that. Um, One has to say uh, perhaps that the, the Fed has not done the best job at this, at up to the time being. And for the most part, they control interest rates and the money supply, right? That Those are the two things that they can use to adjust it, right? Yeah, they do. Uh, but they do have to work uh, really in concert with the executive branch of government um, and make sure that policies are both headed in the right direction. So if they're going to, let's say, tighten the money supply, 
they want to be able to see that there's less spending at the federal level so that those two policies go hand in hand to address inflation. State labor economist Paul Turek, thank you so much for your expertise. We have to take another break, but coming up, a damning report about racial disparities at the King County Sheriff's Office. That's the top line, but it's certainly not the whole story when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. In this segment, we're going to take a look at policing in King County, specifically with the King County Sheriff's Office. An audit was conducted, and the results are somewhat surprising, saying that there are racial disparities in policing in a department that is headed by a woman of color. But those conclusions come with quite a few caveats. Joining me now is John Libertini, reporter for Northwest News Radio, who has been covering this. And uh, first off, let, let's go through the numbers. What were the conclusions of this audit and this report? You know, Jeff, there were a lot of numbers, and making sense out of them is still a work in progress. Uh, I think the things that stood out uh, were that uh, black people accounted for 25% of the arrests in incorporated King County despite being only 7% of the population. I think uh, the auditors drew the conclusion that uh, the King County Sheriff's Office was 350% more likely to arrest a black person for a crime, uh, you know, given its proportion to the population. But what they couldn't do is they couldn't say what was the crime for, what what was the, where did it occur? You know, things that might bring some understanding for such a large number. And you talk about incorporated parts of King County. So this is within the cities that use the sheriff's office as their police department. Is that correct? Yeah, it includes those two. But these are, you know, these are largely the very populated areas of King County. And when what, you know, the unincorporated areas are essentially in very rural areas and not very populated. And was there any difference there? Did they break down those numbers in the unincorporated parts? You know, I, th- there were more traffic stops uh, in that part of the county, uh, you know, traffic stops that involved pulling people over for expired license plates or lights that were out. You know, those are things that uh, the auditors suggested that the sheriff's department and other law enforcement agencies need to get away from using those mechanisms for pulling people over. And of course, those kinds of things have been used for years as investigative techniques. You pull someone over for, you know, taillight out or whatever, who knows what you'll find. And there have been plenty of stories about, you know, those types of traffic stops, you know, bearing fruit, but they happen a lot. And, you know, poor people, regardless of their color, are usually people are usually the ones behind the wheels of vehicles that are, you know, missing lights and, and, you know, have expired tags. So you talk about the racial disparities in, in the people who were arrested. What about the disparities, if there were any, in the officers making the arrests? Well, it was interesting. They started out, you know, detailing an Asian police officer and then a Hispanic sheriff's deputy, excuse me. Uh, And they were considerably less likely to be involved in a situation where there were allegations of excessive use of force. They said that white police officers were 52% more likely to use force than officers of all other racial groups combined. Uh, But again, they couldn't provide any supporting information. Where did these things happen? How many white police officers are there among the ranks of the King's County Sheriff's Department? Are there there 80% white officers and very few Hispanic and Asian officers? 
they couldn't answer questions like that that might provide some better understanding for you know how these you know allegations of excessive force are playing out and at the hands of whom we talked off the top that there are a lot of caveats to these numbers and we don't want to flood the listeners with you know all these different statistics but on the surface it looks very damning that the police department or i should say the sheriff's office in king county much like the seattle police department had issues with racial profiling with racial enforcement of uh, various laws but it's not quite that simple what are some of the things that they want you to take a look at that kind of tell more of the story well you know again this is a very complicated report i mean you know we we talked about excessive use of force and and the sheriff stood up who's only been on the job now for for a month or so she says look between 2019 and 2021, we had a million calls, and only 619 of those involved excessive use of force. That's like one half of 1%. So she told the board today, the committee, that, you know, this is, this is proof that our deputies are doing what we asked them to do, because given the number of calls and, and the very low percentage of them that resulted in allegations of use of force, we're doing some things right. Now, going forward, you know, th- there are a lot of dynamics here, Jeff. You know, they talk about traffic enforcement, and the sheriff's department talks about traffic enforcement as a means of promoting safety. So the auditor says, well, if you're going to do that, then you need to focus on traffic safety, not pulling people over for a variety of things, as I mentioned earlier taillights, bald tires, whatever. That's where things become complicated, especially as the sheriff's department contracts out to some communities around King County, because there are some communities that that want that. You know, they if they're if they're paying for the sheriff's department to do this, then uh, Sheriff Patty Cole Tyndall was quick to note that you know they get to sort of dictate what sort of police force they have in their communities. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that is that they repeatedly talked about the details of this report, but frequently noted that they didn't have supporting information to really draw broad conclusions. As you noted on the surface, this sounds damning, but if you sat through the hearing like I did and you heard all of these qualifications and these caveats, you were left to wonder, where is the truth? What is actually factual? What is it that I'm hearing here? And I'm not sure that they know yet because you know, they don't, they don't have all the numbers. So what does the sheriff's office do from here? Are they continuing to conduct this audit, conduct this study, and, and look into their policies? Well, you know, in government, you have to do a study. You have to do, you know, something to build a case for making change. And this is probably what this was. The audit called for more record keeping, more more. They hesitate to call it profiling, but they want the sheriff's department to keep track of the demographic of everyone who's pulled over, not just the violent crimes, not just the uh, incidents where officers are accused of using excessive force. They want to keep track of everybody that has an interaction with the King County Sheriff's Department. And, you know, that sounds like a great idea. But in some respects, you can't do that. There's a law in King County that prevents the sheriff's department and the police department from recording the demographic makeup of the people they come in contact with because the law was created to protect people from 
ICE raids, illegal immigrants who would then be deported from the community. And the fear was that if we kept this kind of demographic information, the federal government might get a hold of it and use it for those purposes. So on the surface, they'd like to know everyone that law enforcement, the King County Sheriff's Department comes in contact with. But making that happen is going to be a real chore because it's going to require changing some laws and passing still others. So what did the uh, sheriff have to say about all of this and, and her plans going forward? You know, she was very forthcoming. I mean, you know, she's been on sort of the other side of this aisle. You know, she worked on the uh, Law Enforcement Oversight Committee. Um, she, you know, has been there and she's scrutinized the activities of the King County Sheriff's Department. Uh, you know, she noted, as I mentioned to you, about the allegations of excessive force. And she noted that, you know, those cases made up less than, you know, almost a half of 1% of all the cases they responded to. She said, as far as keeping track of this sort of demographic information, she said, we don't have the bodies. She says, we're short-staffed, um, and we're, we're doing all we can to cover, you know, the daily needs of law enforcement, much like the Seattle Police Department, which is pulling people from every special unit just so they can go out and, and respond to 911 calls. She says, we don't have the people to do any of that yet, and we don't have, um, right now, we don't have the time to focus on things like traffic enforcement that would allow us that contact with the community so we can, you know, record who it is we're dealing with and then pass it on to you. So it's, it's, this frequently happens when, you know, cities and counties and even states commission studies or audits into things like this. You know, they come up with a lot of great ideas, but in practice, they are a very, very large problem. And I think that this is going to be difficult to pull off, keeping track of every interaction that they have. And, and they're talking about just about all of them. Um, you know, how do you make that work? Well, we'll have to see. And the big question in politics, as always, where does the money come from to pay for all of this? John Lobertini, oh, yeah. thank you so much for your time and insight. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Still to come, State Insurance Commissioner Mike Kreidler accused of some horrendous workplace behavior will have the allegations and why he's refusing to step down when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Local politicians under fire. Two of them, in fact. Let's start with the insurance commissioner. As the accusations and calls for his resignation built to a critical mass on Friday, state insurance commissioner Mike Kreidler made it abundantly clear he wasn't going anywhere. First, a little background. Kreidler, who is a Democrat, has faced accusations of bullying, creating a hostile work environment, and even using racist and transphobic language. Now, those allegations go as far back as 2017. Several employees quit, but one stood up to him. John Noski, the agency's legislative affairs director, accused Kreidler of bullying him about his testimony in front of the state legislature. Kreidler fired Noski this past week. But when asked about Noski's termination, Kreidler cited the at-will employment laws in Washington, which allow an employee to be terminated for no reason at all. That was a step too far for many, including John Braun, the Senate Republican leader. What he's done now where he's fired, the person who made these claims, should be unacceptable. It's the sort of moral corruption we should not tolerate in public office. I mean, the bottom line is this shouldn't happen anywhere, any workplace, certainly in a government workplace. 
And yeah, besides just the, it's the fact that it's wrong. It's also creates a significant fiscal liability for the state. Braun is referring to a potential lawsuit from Noski over his firing. And Braun's sentiments are shared by many on the other side of the aisle as well, including Governor Jay Inslee, who released a statement on Friday saying that Kreidler no longer has the capability of exercising leadership. We may disagree on many issues, certainly we do, but on this, we absolutely agree that this type of behavior is unacceptable. Even the chair of the state Democratic Party says Kreidler should step down. In an email, Tina Podlodowski says Kreidler has learned nothing and has lost the trust of his employees. But Kreidler has made it clear that he isn't going anywhere. In a written statement, he says he takes full responsibility for his past behavior and pledges to do better, but adds that he intends to continue to serve as insurance commissioner. Kreidler has held the position since he was first elected more than 20 years ago. He is up for re-election in 2024. But Mike Kreidler isn't the only local politician in hot water this week. Late on Friday, we learned that State Attorney General Bob Ferguson's office wants Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer to post bail of $10,000. This is a condition of his continued release while he awaits trial on charges of false reporting. Seattle Times reporting the motion seeks to revoke Troyer's previous no-bail release in a case stemming from his controversial confrontation with a black newspaper carrier. Troyer had stopped Cedric Altimer because he thought he was up to no good, even though he was just delivering papers. Troyer told dispatch that Altimer threatened to kill him, but later recanted that statement. The request by prosecutors follows a decision by a Pierce County judge to impose a one-year anti-harassment and restraining order against Troyer, requiring him to stay away from Cedric Altimer because of continued incidents of unlawful harassment by Troyer. Through his attorney, Troyer has denied those encounters. Still to come, fireworks are starting to flame out in Washington State. We'll get to the details when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, cracking down on fireworks. For decades, even centuries, it's been an American tradition. But that tradition has cost countless lives over the years and even more fingers and limbs. Eric Hicks is president of the King County Fire Chiefs Association. The 4th of July has historically been one of the busiest days of the year for King County Fire Departments. The number of fires we respond to is over four times the amount um, on normal summer days. Additionally, there is a substantial increase in medical calls all related to fireworks. So bans on the individual sale and discharge of fireworks have ramped up over the years, and now King County is joining the crowd. But this shouldn't come as a surprise. We adopted this over a year ago because the legislature requires a one-year waiting period before a local ban can come into effect. King County Councilman Joe McDermott says every year firefighters are tasked not only with putting out fires caused by these personal fireworks displays, but as we said, providing aid to those who are injured due to inexperience, often mixed with alcohol. But that's not all. Veterans who have PTSD from their service um, live in fear that day. Pet owners are concerned about their pets and will stay home to comfort scared animals for the day. People will be with hoses, keeping their lawns and the roofs wet to protect from fireworks. But it has really felt like a bombardment 
in some immediate neighborhoods in White Center. And as he says, South Seattle and South King County in particular has been a problem area. Fellow Councilman Gurme Zahalai says confusion over the law has also been a problem. There's also an element of consistency here. When you have an ur- urban pockets like Skyway or White Center that have different rules than their neighboring cities, that can cause a funneling effect where people are coming to these urban pockets to light off their fireworks. And so if we're saying, no, this whole region has a ban now, hopefully that will reduce the effects of people coming into these uh, neighborhoods in concentrated urban areas to blow off their fireworks because they believe it's legal. Meanwhile, tribal lands have their own regulations on setting off fireworks, with many of them far more lenient. But the problem is that too many people purchase fireworks that are legal on a reservation but illegal elsewhere. Once again, Joe McDermott. I don't expect there to be zero fireworks um, in any community that that bans them. But the public education campaign we're rolling out is the first step in making sure people are aware and we start making that switch and have a new understanding in our communities. And that understanding, he hopes, is that explosives are not the proper way to celebrate the 4th of July. An irony not lost on The Simpsons. Celebrate the independence of your nation by blowing up a small part of it. All right. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. And one last thought, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, including my father, Ron Podula. Thank you so much for all your support. I love you and I hope to see you soon. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening and have a good week.